I'm Mary from the west coast of Sweden by way of the Gulf Coast of Mississippi. I'd like to say hey to all my compatriots from Democrats Abroad Sweden. This program is made possible by supporters just like me. Get details on the big fundraiser running throughout June to see how you can support the show and earn cool perks like getting to guest introduce an episode by visiting the fundraiser page at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The David Pakman Show, The Majority Report, Counterspin, Planet Money, The Jimmy Dore Show, The Tom Hartman Program, and The Young Turks. Since not everyone can yet enjoy the healthcare system of Sweden, don't let the ideal be the enemy of the good. But don't just be satisfied with the good when there's always room for improvement. 9.5 million people who were previously uninsured now have health insurance. We've talked about the good and the bad of Obamacare, of the Affordable Care Act. And at this point, it's abundantly clear that in spite of all of the bad things, there are many significant good things coming as a result of it. President Obama's health care law, after the rocky launch that took place, in part because of Republicans not properly funding it in their states, has now spurred the largest expansion in health coverage in the United States in half a century, according to national surveys and enrollment data. So this looks at a review of state and federal enrollment reports, surveys, interviews with the insurance executives who are up to speed on how many new customers they're getting as a result of the law. These are not exact numbers. The, ex the, the final reports will be a few more months. Uh, um, it'll be a few more months before we have those numbers. But what we do know is at least 6 million people have signed up for health coverage on these new marketplaces, about one-third of whom were previously uninsured. That's 2 million people previously uninsured there. A February survey by consulting company McKinsey & Company found that 27% of new enrollees were previously uninsured, and new data suggests that during March it was even more of the new subscribers that were previously uninsured. 4.5 million previously uninsured adults have signed up for state Medicaid programs, according to RAND's unpublished survey data. And the numbers go on and on and on. So I, I really have mixed feelings. I want to just report this as honestly as possible, as close as it is to my honest feelings, Lewis, because the reality is my view on this is nuanced. On the one hand, the pre-existing conditions uh, 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 modifications in terms of not being excluded from coverage if you have pre-existing conditions, uh, being the creation of the exchanges, the individual mandate, being able to stay on parents' insurance until age 26, these are all good things. More people being insured is a good thing. What's bad is that the entire macro health insurance system of this country is a disaster. For some reason, every other country at our level of development has figured out that we don't need to have a profit-driven health insurance system. You can have a government, non-profit health insurance system not tied to employment, which is better for people. It prevents health insurance, health cost-related bankruptcy from happening. That's unheard of in other countries at our level of development. And it is also better for people. You can be more self-realized and self-actualized if you can make decisions about employment that reflect what would be best for you and your family based on your interests and based on the type of job rather than having to stay at a job just to avoid losing your health insurance. So I feel, Lewis, that when I'm overly critical or not critical enough, 
our our audience, parts of our audience, might only take one side of that, when really this is two-sided. It does good at the micro level, and the macro is still a system that needs to be drastically uh, changed. Right, and that's the problem. It needs to be drastically changed, and that uh, I don't think is going to happen for a very long time. Uh, the only person, of course, that would be adversely affected, people, rather, would be health insurance companies, and they're the ones that have... Uh, a lot of the power, I guess. That's right. The, the biggest, the, those who stand to lose the most from a government-run universal healthcare system are the private insurers. That's actually that's absolutely right. And many countries have said that's not really a business that adds to society. Making health insurance a profit thing, it's not adding anything. So we've, they've got to move on and do something else. Uh, there would be a lot of lobbying dollars pushing against that. My body's cold. My guts are twisted steel. And I feel like I'm some kind of Frankenstein Waiting for a shock to bring me back to life But I don't want to spend my time Waiting for lightning to strike Let's talk about this uh, Obamacare thing, and, and I want to invite any libertarians to call in. Or, you know, right-wingers of any stripe, or anybody, frankly. But libertarians love to come call in and talk about freedom. <laughs> that no, they do. They do. <laughs> now, I cannot imagine. Well, uh, yeah, I, I can't. But in the context of this country... And we have privacy issues. But when you talk about freedom broadly, what, what, one of those, it seems to me, one of the key aspects of freedom is to be able to reach your full potential as a, as a person, to pursue what you want to pursue with your life. And, that means to have genuine opportunity, and that's not just, well, all the doors are open. It doesn't matter where you come from. It means also starting from a position that actually allows genuine opportunity. We know that you can predict a person's income at age 45 with an astonishing rate of accuracy based upon the area code, the zip code in which they're born, you can predict almost with a 90-95% accuracy the quality of the school that is available to them based upon the average income in the zip code they come from. We know that we have an incredibly anemic mobility rate in this country relative to other Western industrialization. So there, you know, is there genuine freedom there? Well, one of the other aspects of freedom is to say that I want, there, there are certain types of work I want to pursue. There are certain things I want to do with my life. But because I can't get health insurance, for my children or for myself or my family, uh, I'm going to be stuck in this job, and that is known as job lock. 
So the CBO came out with a report yesterday, and there was uh, there were two basically uh, uh, big pieces of news that came out of it. One was an arcane part about uh, the Affordable Care Act called risk corridors, wherein the Affordable Care Act mandates certain parameters for profits for insurance companies. And if you exceed those profits in the first three years of implementation, you need to pay into a fund which will actually go to insurance companies that get less than a certain amount of profit, basically to subsidize those insurance companies during the transition that takes place under the Affordable Care Act. So it's all within the industry. The Republicans wanted to call this a bailout and wanted to tie the raising of the debt ceiling limit to repealing this so-called bailout. Well, the CBO came out with a report which shows, in fact, that this supposed bailout, which is really just between insurance companies, it's set up in some respects like the Pension Guarantee Trust. That's another issue. But, it, but in some respects, insofar as that the industry pays into this fund to provide these risk corridors, that, in fact, the U.S. government is going to have a net gain of about $8 billion because there will be more insurance companies that will be making money outside of that risk corridor than, than will be losing it. So that fell apart for the Republicans. The other big piece of news that came out of the CBO report was, well, it was reported that there will be 2 million plus lost jobs as a result of the Affordable Care Act by 2024. And so everyone ran with this story. There'll be 2 million uh, less, 2.5 million less jobs in 2024. But in fact, and by the end of the day, most had corrected themselves. What was reported is that there will be 2.5 million less workers in the job force, in the workforce, because they will voluntarily take themselves out of the, the workforce because they are, have access to health insurance and they don't need to be stuck in these jobs that they don't want to maintain health insurance. So, in other words, 2.5 million of these people, and there's some question as to whether or not how this breaks up. I'll get a little weedier about it in a moment. But essentially, 2.5 million people who will have the freedom to quit their job because they can afford health insurance outside of an employer-sponsored program. This is going to have two distinct effects on the labor force. One, it's going to mean that younger people, because many of these people are probably older, maybe they're 55, maybe they're 60, maybe, you know, maybe they're 40, but they're probably around the higher age uh, spectrum because then they'll wait for Medicare. 
They don't need to work for those last five or ten years. They can retire early. Or maybe they can go and do something entrepreneurial in some way. I don't know. It's going to mean that younger people are going to have more opportunities to find jobs because there's going to be less workers that they're competing with. And it's going to mean that there's going to be an upward pressure on wages because suddenly the supply of labor is going, well, not suddenly, over time, the supply of labor is going to shrink. And that means that employers will be competing to essentially buy that labor from members of the job, uh, the, 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 labor, the worker force, the worker market. And so there's multiple benefits to this. There's benefits to the increased freedom for people who are no longer locked into a job that they can't stand because they have health insurance. It means that it's going to open up opportunities for younger people. And there's not going to be necessarily, you know, 2.5 million younger people all of a sudden coming out of nowhere. And it will also, depending on the mix there, it will increase, it will create upward pressure on wages. Probably particularly for people who are in the uh, workforce for a long time because you're going to be losing some older, more experienced workers. So this is great. It has nothing to do with employers hiring less people. It has everything to do with people choosing to work less. Ex-senators on both sides of aisle join forces on health care. That was the New York Times headline on May 20th. Elite media love anything bipartisan. Lawmakers crossing the aisle as their exemplar of Congress behaving as it should, regardless of the actual content of policy. The story plays up how Republican Trent Lott and Democrat Tom Daschle used to fight over health care, while centrist Democrat John Brough was at odds with both of them. But lo and behold, quote, now these three retired Senate powers are combining to push an expansion of telemedicine as a way to improve health care access and cut costs, close quote. But this emphasis on the partisan schism is kind of a red herring. Lot, Dashiell, and Bro aren't so much politicians from feuding camps as they are industry lobbyists working for the same people. As the piece notes, the three are working on behalf of the Alliance for Connected Care, a nonprofit collection of healthcare providers, insurers, pharmacies, technology firms, and telecommunications companies. So the real story here is lobbyists paid by same healthcare giants agree. That's a little underwhelming.
Speaking of the need to change the paradigm of how healthcare gets paid for in this country, I am a fan of overturning all kinds of different paradigms, which is why it's not surprising to me at least that I've become a big fan of Harry's.com. Harry's set out to disrupt the current shaving paradigm, maybe not the most important issue in the world, but you know, one I certainly have to deal with and many of you do too. Specifically, the paradigm where you go to the store and pay way too much for blades that aren't even that good anyways. Harry sells directly online, so they manage to keep their prices about half that of the big name competitors, and their blades are also, and I am not exaggerating for effect here, the best blades I have ever used. Not only are they made with some sort of magic that makes them give a closer shave, but in my experience, they keep shaving comfortably for about twice as long as my old blades, which means I don't have to buy as many over time. When you order online, you can choose between setting up an auto-refill order, so you never have to think about it again, or you can do the standard a la carte order for blades and shaving creams, and right now, they're even featuring a cool father-son shave set in honor of Father's Day. So go to harrys.com and just try them out. You'll thank me later. And to help you with your first order, use the promo code BEST, B-E-S-T, to save $5 off your purchase, and that also lets them know that you're supporting this show at the same time. This is one provision of the Affordable Care Act, better known as Obamacare, that doesn't get mentioned a lot, but it could end up having a pretty big impact. It's this provision that basically sets up a bunch of experiments in hospitals all around the country. Experiments in trying to deliver the same or better quality of health care for less money. And one of these experiments is happening in Akron, a city you recently visited, Lisa. And this experiment is trying to solve a very big problem, the fundamental problem in healthcare. Michael Furstenberg, a heart surgeon, lays out this problem. He says, okay, a patient gets a bypass operation, Medicare pays Dr. Furstenberg and the hospital for that operation. However, if that patient that night has to go back for bleeding, then I get paid for that procedure as well. And everybody's happy because look at all the revenue I'm generating independent of the quality. Think about that for a minute. If Dr. Furstenberg screws up and the patient has to come back, he makes more money. Now, no doctor wants to make mistakes, but even doctors know the incentives here are crazy. Ken Berkowitz is a cardiologist at the same hospital. Everybody in the healthcare system gets rewarded for doing more rather than rewarded for doing the right thing. And this problem of skewed incentives is what people here at this hospital are trying to solve. And they're trying to solve the problem by taking these skewed financial incentives and trying to align them better. This realigning, it's a big experiment. An experiment laid out by the Affordable Care Act that this hospital in Akron has volunteered to be a part of. And what this experiment does, it changes the way Medicare pays this hospital and these doctors. So rather than doing it the old way, where Medicare pays for every procedure, it's now a package deal. The technical term is bundled payment. And the way it works is, let's use Dr. Furstenberg's example. Rather than paying for the bypass operation and then paying again for the bleeding, Medicare will pay one lump sum upfront to cover not only the surgery, but any complications that occur after surgery as well. And that one lump sum, that's all they get. Now, if the patient doesn't have any problems within 30 days of being discharged from the hospital, the doctors could actually make more money than they do today. But they stand to lose money if there are lots of problems after surgery. Dr. Furstenberg says he prefers it this way because this system rewards better care. We don't want to be paid for doing shoddy work. I mean, when you go in and you get the brakes done on your car, you get a warranty. 
we want to be able to approach the same thing. So the hope is moving to a lump sum payment system will improve care. But Deirdre Baggett, the consultant who was leading the meeting at the beginning of the program, says she hopes it does something else. Also, she hopes it saves money. Yeah, because remember, if you get one lump sum, then everything you do comes out of that. So now you start looking at every band aid and every staff member, every place you might be spending more than you need. The less you spend of that lump sum, the more of that lump sum you get to keep. So, how do you get a doctor to spend less? This brings us back to that super tense meeting we heard at the beginning. Deirdre Baggett, the consultant, says that tension—it's part of the point. It turns out if you tell a doctor how much he costs and—and and this is key—how his costs rank against everyone else's costs, behaviors change. Physicians are innately competitive, so I know after session one that change will happen. It, it happens the minute they leave the room because they want to be number one. They were always the top of the class, and they—they they want to do that here. And so Deirdre sets these meetings up like a public report card, like they're back in medical school. Except instead of competing for grades, they're competing on a bunch of other metrics related to how much they cost, whose surgeries start the latest, who orders the most expensive lab tests. Ken Berkovitz, a cardiologist here, says he remembers learning that some of his colleagues were using cheaper anticoagulant drugs than he was. I was using drugs. That were more expensive. That are certainly guideline based, but there's been some newer data, some newer studies, that、uh, some of my、uh, colleagues and partners have embraced perhaps earlier than I have. And what's brought me to change is is looking at the data. And I probably would not have changed so quickly had I not had the data shared with me. Was it uncomfortable when you first saw the data? Um. It, it, I, I can tell you, for the physicians in general, yes, it's uncomfortable. And that is the miracle that happens when the financial incentives get properly aligned. Physicians start to do things that they probably should have been doing anyway, but they didn't because it made them uncomfortable. And perhaps the biggest example of this that you found, Lisa, for a long time, doctors have resisted doing something that many other professions, where lives are on the line, do as a matter of course. Fighter pilots, race car drivers, all use this tool—a simple checklist. That's because checklists save lives. Did the patient get their antibiotics on time? Check. Did the catheter come out on time? Check. Just the simple act of making a list and checking things off that reduced post-surgical death rates by almost half, according to one study. And yet, even though this information about checklists was out there, heart surgeon Eric Espinal and his team didn't want to use one. I got to admit, as a physician, when we came up with this, I kind of felt. A little silly for the first few weeks, following sort of a checklist or a menu. But because of this move to a lump sum payment, the hospital and the doctors here got over feeling silly. Because now checklists also make them money. Checklists cut down on complications, and in the old world, complications that sent patients back into the hospital they didn't cost the doctors anything. But Dr. Berkovitz says in the new world, complications are very expensive. If you can reduce complications and change nothing else, you dramatically reduce、uh, the cost of a case. Hanging out at Suma Akron City Hospital, 
I got to see one other way this experiment in changing the way doctors get paid was also changing the way doctors behave. What's her activity level? Does she get up and walk? She is refusing to get up and walk. It came during morning rounds. Eric Espinal was asking about a 63-year-old patient who was recovering from heart surgery and about to be discharged. Dr. Espinal turned to Julie Whitehurst, the discharge nurse. This is the plan for home, then? She is refusing home care. She doesn't want anything to do with it. I tried to talk her into it for eight days now. <laughs> I can't force her to have it. Now, this patient refusing a home health care nurse, it wouldn't have mattered financially at least, to the cardiac team under the old system. If she ended up back in the hospital, they still got paid. But with this experiment and changing to a lump sum bundled payment, her refusal matters to them financially. If she gets sick at home and has to be readmitted to the hospital, it cuts into the hospital's and the doctor's money. And so Dr. Espinal starts considering things he might not have considered about this patient before. For example, why is she refusing home health care? I suspect that the reason that this particular patient didn't want home nurses coming into her home is because she was embarrassed at how she lived. She lives in such a difficult, dirty sort of situation that she's embarrassed to have people to come to her home. And that's something that we have to deal with. Some patients don't live like you and I do. They have, they're barely kind of living on the fringes, and these are patients who get very, very sick. So I think we need to kind of understand that. Under the old model, there certainly wouldn't be a financial incentive for Dr. Espinal to delve deep into the psychological state of a patient like this. But now, in this new model, he has a financial stake in trying to figure out why is she doing this thing that she's doing. And this financial stake compels him to be more dogged about making sure that patient doesn't have problems and have to be readmitted to the hospital. And in this patient's case, they came up with a workaround. She never did agree to home health care. So what they did is they agreed to set up an earlier-than-normal office visit with her. So normally it's like something like two weeks after surgery. In her case, they invited her in just one week after surgery so that they could monitor her condition more closely. It costs a little bit of money out of that lump sum, but it's a lot less than if she had to be readmitted. Now, this experiment that we've been describing here in Akron, it hasn't officially begun yet. Yeah, all these things that they've been doing, it's in preparation for the official change, which happens January 1st. That is when Medicare will officially change the way they get paid at this hospital. And this hospital isn't the only one. Hundreds of hospitals are doing bundled payment experiments around dozens of other procedures, not just heart surgeries. And the plan here, as envisioned by the Affordable Care Act, is to do what you do with experiments. You set them up and you let them run. In this case, they're going to run for three years. So in three years, we will be able to say definitively whether or not all those uncomfortable conversations, whether or not they were worth it. There's nothing to do here, so I'm just whining complain in bed at the hospital. Coming and going, asleep and awake in bed. So there was uh, Carl Levin, his retired uh, senator. He's been a senator since 1840 in Michigan. 
and uh, he voted. He was Tip, Tip, Tip he was, a canoe and Levin too. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. He was instrumental in the Reconstruction period in the <laughs> South. And anyway, so he's a Democrat. He's the uh, he survived the teapot dome scandal. He, he did. sure did. He did. Yeah. So he's in. Um, and the Astrodome scandal, which that's a big, he's, he really spanned a long time. So he's retiring, so they're having a special, they're having an election to replace him. And uh, the, the Democrat is having to, again, defend Obamacare in that race. And here's the commercial that the Republican is running in Michigan about Obamacare. My name is Julie Boonstra, and five years ago, I was diagnosed with leukemia. I found out that I only have a 20% chance of surviving. My insurance was canceled because of Obamacare. Now, the out-of-pocket costs are so high, it's unaffordable. If I do not receive my medication, I will die. <laughs> she might die from stupidity at first, right? <laughs> I think that's the only thing. She might die. I, I might die. Okay, so it was pointed out to her. Uh, by what, So they did a little checking. She doesn't, by the way, she doesn't have Lou Gehrig's disease. She has Lou Costello's disease. <laughs> <laughs> so she did, so she's totally wrong about that, right? So Obamacare, the Detroit Free Press did a little checking. Turns out, hey, you can get a plan uh, for less than what you're paying right now. It's a better plan. You can't be ever canceled, blah, blah, blah. This all, everything's better, lower out-of-pocket costs. They cap your out-of-pocket costs. You have a better plan waiting for you. So this... These ads were so false, misleading, and just blatant. That's a blatant lie that the lawyers for the Democrat in Michigan sent letters to the TV stations saying, please stop running this because this is so blatantly false. Could you please fact check some one commercial you run? Who, who said this? So the lawyers for the Democrat in Michigan who's running for Carl Levin's seat. Whoever that is, I'm sure I have that name written down somewhere. <laughs> right? You do. Sure. Yes, you do have it written down somewhere. <laughs> okay. So um, I'm uh, I'm uh, I'm struggling. Str the internet is a little slow. Oh, really? James. Yeah, I can't. Uh, I can tell you who's running in Iowa. I don't want to know. <laughs> so guess so they sent letters to the TV stations, and then this is so. Then what did the Republican do? They came out with another commercial, and here's that commercial. Here's the next commercial. When I heard that Congressman Peters was going after my credibility, it was devastating. I just want Congressman Peters to help me, to listen to me. Instead, he's trying to silence me. He's trying to tell you to quit making stuff up and that they have a health care plan waiting for you, you knucklehead. Yeah, well, the Detroit Free Press has already helped you. Yes, the yeah. they, they did. Man, my favorite thing is that, that the Detroit Free Press said... You know this is the case, and she said, "Well, I don't believe." Well, that. here's what the here's what the Detroit. By the way, it's Gary, what, Gary Peters. Gary Peters is I, running against. He's running against Terry Lynn. Terry Lynn. Terry Lynn, the Republican. Gary Peters is the Congre uh, Democrat congressman running for Carl Levin's seat in Michigan. And so the Detroit Free Press did that investigation, and here it is. Here's here's her plan. Her plan is her old plan is eleven hundred dollars a month and thirteen thousand dollars a year and out of pocket. Her new plan is $571 a month and $6,800 a year out of pocket. Cheaper, better, and gives her better coverage. Thanks, Obama. I think actually the, the $6,800 a year out of pocket, is it's even less, I think. <clears throat> because, this is according to the Detroit Free Press. Right? Yeah, no, I, I read an article yesterday that that's the federal uh, maximum. And the plan she qualified for is even better. Yeah, so she's, And it's like $5,000 out of pocket per year is the max. So they oh. tell her this. 
The Detroit newspaper tells her this. People tell her this. And uh, this is what she says. This is true. She said, it can't be true. I personally do not believe that. Mm. <laughs> well, okay, then. I've had this experience, by the way. I was on Facebook, and there's this young lady who used to be a waitress at a comedy club in Chicago, and she's very nice. And she's right, and she did something about, you know, remember they had those fake doctors come out wearing fake uh, white lab coats talking about how bad Obamacare was? I think the lab coats right. were actually lab coats. They were actual lab coats, yeah. yes. And uh, so she posted that video, and I said, you know, everything this woman's saying is wrong. And she's just lying about Obama. This is not, in fact, you know, this blah, blah. And she just wrote, uh, I don't, the girl who posted it, she wrote back, I don't care what you say. I'll never believe that Obamacare can help me. <laughs> well, then, okay. you're all set that. Yeah, I I, uh, we can wrap this conversation up then. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> so um, that's what we're up against. So, so every time they come out with a new commercial, uh, Sean Hannity's got some so people. I guess, go I guess with this woman in Michigan, uh, the seven stages of die, uh, dying are denial, 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 <laughs> denial, denial. <laughs> it's weird. You wouldn't think she'd deny the treatment. But you know, it turns out she does. But, you know, the original part of Obamacare was that it was going to bankrupt the government, right? Right. Right. There was government takeover. Takeover. Right? right. I mean, who in their right mind, what even moderately rational person thinks that the intent of Obamacare was not to get people who need coverage covered? Coverage. Right. I mean, it just defies lies. There's no way it does this. Yeah. Like, th th that's the, the whole point. And, by the way, if your plan did count you, the whole thing is you can get another plan. That was I, That was tentacle one of the law. You can't be denied coverage. That's so, the whole point. So their tactic has changed completely. Yes. To, they've conceded that uh, it's not government takeover of uh, of healthcare. Now they're just making up lies about it, and now they're just saying, no, no. What it's going to do is cost you health coverage. Yeah. Why would Why would they inf implement a plan? See, but this plays into the narrative, Ben. The, the narrative is we're taking healthcare and we're taking money from Whitey. And we're giving it to Blackie. That's right. That's and true. And that's what they see. You don't get health care, but Blackie does. Blackie, who's in the inner city, not working. And in fact, uh, oh, I thought you were black and about poor John people Stamos. got kind of screwed more out of this because of the Medicare expansion. They wouldn't take it, and that really hurts the working yes. poor. Yes. So actually, uh, a lot of black people, a lot of poor people, white and of color, really came out on the rough end of this. Yes. More than a lot of the people that the Republican Party is catering to. I, that can't be true. I personally do not believe that. This is actually uh, a story that I think there's probably a lot of these stories uh, going around on some level, and I certainly have my problems with the Affordable Care Act. I know we would have gotten a much better health care system if uh, Mitt Romney was elected. <laughs> but it's in the uh, Philadelphia Inquirer. It's about a guy named Dean... Angstat. And Dean is a logger. He's 57 years old. Very self-sufficient guy. 
He'd been uninsured since 2009. <clears throat> and in 2011, he had a pacemaker and a defibrillator implanted into his uh, body to, to help his ailing heart pump. Or, excuse me, his ailing heart pump more efficiently. The guy would scrimp and save to pay his medical bills because he couldn't get health insurance. I don't read what the Democrats have to say about it because I think they're full of it, he told his friend Bob Leinhauser, who suggested he sign up for the Affordable Care Act. However, that refrain changed earlier this year when a faulty aortic valve almost felled Angstat. So he was facing a choice, buy a health plan through a law he despised, or to get this uh, life uh, this life-saving surgery he needed, or die. Well, it turns out he bought health insurance through the Affordable Care Act. I think a lot of people I talk to are so misinformed about the ACA. I was before Bob, his buddy, Bob Leinhauser, went through all this for me. I would recommend it to anybody. In fact, I've encouraged friends, who, including that one guy who hauls my logs. I knew I was really sick. I figured doctors were going to have to operate, so I tried to work as long as I could to save money for the surgery, but it got to the point where I couldn't work. We argued about it for months, Angstad said. I didn't trust this Obamacare. One of the big reasons is because it sounded too good to be true. January came, his health declined, his doctor made it clear if he didn't get uh, the valve replacement surgery, he was going to die. So Leinhauser came over to Angstad's house. In less than an hour, they had done the application. A day later, Angstad had signed up for the Highmark Blue Cross Silver PPO plan, paid his first monthly premium of $26.11. All of a sudden, I'm getting notification for Highmark. I got my card, and it was actually all legitimate. I could have done backflips uh, if I was in better shape. On March 31st, he had life-saving valve replacement uh, surgery. I probably would have ended up falling over dead without the surgery. Not only did it save my life, it's going to give me a better quality of life. He says the political storm around the ACA is the political parties fighting each other over things that can benefit people. What's amazing is the guy still doesn't quite get what was going on with that. For me, this isn't about politics. I'm trying to help other people who are like me, stubborn and bullheaded, who refuse to even look. From my own experience, the ACA is everything it's supposed to be, in fact, better than it's made out to be. And the guy still doesn't get it. The Democrats are not fighting much about this anymore. It seems to me they're just in vague retreat. Listen, I was able to find a plan covered under Obamacare that didn't require the chip be installed in my arm. Yeah, there I you go. I could find that same plan for you. But but the chip point is, option. <laughs> this is this is one of the political hurdles that the Affordable Care Act faces. Is that even when people like it, they don't realize that it was politics that brought this about for them. They don't make the connection between what government can do to make your life better 
and what happens at the voting booth. So much of their their votes are cast as a function of just who they perceive themselves to be. But conversely, I think that that really, you know, going back to the 90s when Bill Kristol wrote that memo saying that Clinton's health care plan needed to be killed at all costs because as soon as this plan is integrated into the social safety network fabric, it will be expected and demanded and in some way benefit the Democrats just intrinsically because they created the program and there will be some at least ancillary benefit from that. It's not and just benefit the Democrats. What it does is it, it begins to change people's perception well, change about people, government. But, but, you know, again, which remember... Theoretically would benefit Democrats. The irony is, though, is that Clearly. It, it tends to... I, I think that something like this changes people's perception of government when they have lived on both ends of it. When it wasn't there and then when it was there. Absolutely. Because you don't see the same... Um, reaction to Social Security and Medicare. Now it's just, you know, keep the government's hands off my Medicare. <laughs> but you saw the same reaction when these programs were proposed. People right, said it would right. lead to communism yep, and all yep, this nonsense. Yep, yep. And, Travis, I'll go back to you. I love this discussion of forcing people to buy a private company's product being couched as a government-provided service. Well, it's government-subsidized. And it expanded Medicaid significantly. Uh, yes, significantly. I mean, look, and it also uh, imposes a lot of regulation on that private industry. And is it as good as single payer? No. But is it improvement over what was before? Yeah. Obviously. There's always room for improvement. Cold days without any movement. I don't want to be talking, just my As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. Back in 2009, when the healthcare debate was at its most crazy, Republicans warned us that once Obamacare was passed, government officials would get to ration health care and as a result have control over the life and death of millions of Americans. And they called the bureaucrats who supposedly got to make these decisions death panels. The idea of death panels had actually been kind of swirling around the right-wing media echo chamber for a while, but it really kind of jumped the shark into the mainstream when Sarah Palin talked about it in an August 2009 Facebook note that got picked up by the national press. Palin said that if the health care bill became law, Obamacare, people like her disabled son, she's got a kid with Down syndrome, her disabled son would, quote, have to stand in front of Obama's death panel 
so his bureaucrats could decide based on a subjective ju- judgment of their level of productive productivity in society whether they are worthy of health care, end of quote. Soon everyone, pundits, politicians, they were all talking about death panels. Iowa Secret- uh, Senator Chuck Grassley, for example, back on August 11, 2009, he, he stood up in front of a crowd of supporters and says, this version of the health care bill would allow government to decide when to pull a plug on grandma. Grassley's warning about a grandmother killing socialist plan was one of a whole bunch of these, you know, scare stories told by Republicans that summer. Be afraid, be very afraid. It's really, you know, now we look back in retrospect, it's really easy to laugh at Chuck Grassley and Sarah Palin uh, now that more than 8 million Americans are getting health insurance because of Obamacare and people's lives are actually being saved by Obamacare. But the uh, ironic thing is that People like Sarah Palin and Chuck Grassley, who warned us about death panels, were actually kind of right. All across the country right now, people are literally dying because politicians are denying them the health care they need to survive, and it does have something to do with Obamacare. But it's not because President Obama or some evil communist plot that puts politics over lives got hatched. It's because of Republicans. Republicans have created their own, their own death panel. Activists connected to MoveOn.org showed up at the largest of these uh, GOP death panels in New York City yesterday. It's called the Republican Governors Association. Its president is uh, Chris Christie. And its members, people like Nikki Haley and Rick Perry, they're the real health care killers. That's because right now, 24 states, all of which are either led by Republican governors or controlled by Republican legislatures, are refusing to expand Medicaid under Obamacare. And as a direct result of that, approximately 4.8 million, almost 5 million low-income working Americans do not have health insurance just because Republican governors and legislators in red states refuse to take the federal money that would pay for it. These 4.8 million people work at low-paying jobs, typically earning between four, four and $11,000 a year. But even at that, they make too much money to qualify for the normal, non-expanded Medicaid. And they're too poor to qualify for the free or subsidized health insurance on the Obamacare exchanges. They're caught in what's known as the red state donut hole, which was drilled into Obamacare by John Roberts and the other four right-wing justices on the Supreme Court when they said that states could refuse money to expand Medicaid. The death panels that Sarah Palin went on and on about for years back four years ago, they are real, not real. But the red state donut hole death panel actually is real and actually is killing people. Back in March, for example, Charlene Dill, a hardworking single mom who worked three jobs to help make ends meet, collapsed and died from an untreated heart condition. Like approximately 750,000 other Floridians stuck in the red state donut hole, Charlene knew she was sick and needed medication, but couldn't get it to save her life because Florida's Republican governor, Rick Scott, refused to expand Medicaid under Obamacare. Rick Scott now has Charlene's blood on his hands. And Charlene isn't the only person killed by the Red State Donut Hole death panel, and she certainly won't be the last. In fact, according to a new study out of Harvard University, as many as 17,000 people will die in America just this year as a direct result of the Republican Party's refusal to expand Medicaid. 
These Republicans should rot in hell and probably will. By saying no to expanded Medicaid, they have said no to the right of life of the people who put them into office. And make no mistake about it, this is all about politics. Republican governors like Rick Perry say they're worried about the cost of Medicaid expansion. But since that expansion would be covered almost entirely by the federal government, they're just flat out lying. There is This is all about one thing and one thing alone, sabotaging the Obama presidency. As the midterm elections inch closer and closer, it's going to be harder and harder for Republicans to explain to voters why they've decided to sacrifice the health care of 4.8 million Americans just to make Obama look bad. Which is why right now is the time to call out the Republican refusal to expand Medicaid under Obamacare for what it is. GOP death panel. And it's why it's so cool that MoveOn.org showed up with a giant truck right out in front of the of the uh, Republican Governors Association on the truck and said, we found the death panel. It's right here, Republican Governors Association. You've reached today's activism update. Now that you're informed and angry, here's a glimmer of hope to remind you that not absolutely everything is completely terrible all of the time. Today's update, Medicaid's slow expansion. A major part of the Affordable Care Act's insurance reform goals was a nationwide expansion of Medicaid to cover all adults earning up to 133% of the federal poverty line, or about 15500 per year for an individual and 32000 for a family of four. A Supreme Court ruling made it optional for states to accept this federally funded expansion, and it looked initially like an overwhelming number of governors were going to say no to the money. And yes, that is as simple and as weird as it sounds. Today, however, a number of Republican-controlled state houses are doing the unthinkable, changing their minds. So far, 26 states in the District of Columbia have said yes to the Medicaid expansion, including Arizona Governor Jan Brewer, who called a special legislative session to do so. At the signing ceremony, Brewer further shocked both critics and supporters by describing her position reversal as a moral decision. Quote, I knew I had not chosen the easy path, but I learned a long time ago that what is easy and what is right are rarely the same. Well, today I know in my heart that we have made the right choice, unquote. And she's not alone. Right now, the governors of Indiana, Pennsylvania, Utah, and Virginia appear to be moving toward expansion. With about 8 million low-income adults currently ineligible for Medicaid because of intransigent governors, this momentum is something to both cheer for and demand more of. You can find out if your state took the Medicaid expansion and helped the campaign to continue the push, especially effective in low-turnout election years such as this one, by visiting the Families USA website at familiesusa.org. They also have links to help you enroll and the Affordable Care Act, and other resources. And now I know that today's good news update sounds like a bit of a mixed bag, but in politics, as in life, you can't always wait for perfection to pause and celebrate. Looking around at how far you've come can inspire the motivation to keep going. So here's to the millions who finally have access to health care. For those who are still in need, let's pledge to keep fighting. Activism.
drawn out from in front of the television. Bust out of your self-imposed media prison. There's a whole big world out there, y'all. And some serious stuff is going down. Civil war intolerance, AIDS obliteration. The usual madness, but not enough frustration about what's troubling Earth's nations. The spotlight will not be your savior in these dark days, and it will not be your saving grace. Why not replace your dreams of gracing life stage with action? Now, there's a headline here uh, from Talking Points Memo, and it says, Shock poll pro-Obamacare states see bigger drop in uninsured rate. And I imagine that they're being ironic because, of course, this poll seems obvious. So <laughs> I, I think they are. But it is, uh, it is not. It turns out that states that have embraced Obamacare uh, are having fewer uninsured people than states that aren't either expanding Medicare or joining the exchanges. So the states that are doing both, that are participating fully in the two most important options of Obamacare, have actually seen a significant decline in the number of uninsured people in six months, as opposed to the states that are participating. So it is, in fact, no big shocker. Yeah, it's weird that it turns out that if you try to get insurance for people, they will get it. Yeah. <laughs> and if you say, hey, you know what, we don't want you to have insurance, so we're not going to expand Medicaid so that you can have it, then you get it less. <laughs> it turns out that, that, that people who are uh, poor or middle income care about keeping themselves and mostly their children healthy at exactly the same rates as people who either can afford nice insurance or have it through their jobs. I didn't know that. Huh. That is interesting news to me. So, so let's give the numbers, and then I want to discuss the Republican issues here, right? Yeah, so here's first a quote from the article. This is from, the, this is from Gallup's findings. This is what Gallup has to say. The states that have implemented two of the law's core mechanisms are realizing a rate of decline substantially greater than what is found among the remaining states that have not done so. Consequently, this is the important part, the gap that previously existed between the two groups has now expanded. No surprise at all. So let's take a quick look. States that have expanded Medicaid, and again, we've shortened it. That's states that have expanded Medicaid and are participating in the exchanges. The rate of uninsured has dropped 2.5 points. That's uh, from 16.1 to 13.6, so under 14%. And then the other number we have, the states that have not participated in the exchanges, they have had a nice drop, too, but it's only 0.8, and they are left at 17.9%, a pretty big difference uh, from the states uh, that are participating. And then this national figure we'll take a look at here, uninsured since October of 2013. This is overall 18%. Today, it's 15.6%, nearly a two-and-a-half-point drop. Okay, so two ramifications of this. First of all, if you live in a red state, you're far more likely to be uninsured. And so that was the case actually even before the Affordable Care Act because they take a number of different policy actions uh, that show that they don't really care. That's not an issue. That's not a concern for them. It's not a priority for them. And so that winds up having a result. I mean, at this point, as we stand today, if you live in the states that are mainly obviously blue states that applied Affordable Care Act and uh, increased uh, Medicaid, you're at 13.6% uninsured. If you're in the red states that didn't do that, expanding Medicaid, 17.9, that's a big difference between 13.6 and 17.9. I mean, we're talking 
What is that? That's about uh, over four points, and if you're at 13, that's almost a quarter right there. And it's and it's good. And that number is just going to get greater. It's gotten greater in six months. It will continue to expand that difference, which is now at four points. It'll be five. It'll be six. It'll be seven. So you're, in essence, about 25 percent more likely to be uninsured if you live in a red state. So at some point, this is going to have even bigger results macro on a macro level, where people start thinking. Why don't I go to a state where I can get insurance? Right, because the difference between 18% and 13%, and I'm rounding them off, is those are, that's, all, that's five percentage points. That's tens of thousands of people. That's, that's right. thousands and thousands of people and thousands and thousands of children, people who don't have insurance, Americans who don't have insurance. And then so point number two is think about what the Republicans are saying. So they hate Obamacare, they want to repeal it, right? They say replace, but they literally have nothing to replace it with. And that's an issue for them now, because even some conservatives are saying, oh, come on, guys, we've got to replace it with something, don't we? And the answer, gentlemen, from Boehner and Cantor is, no, nah, not really, right? What they're saying is, we don't really mind if you're uninsured. That's right. Like, we think that it might actually uh, increase our rates, uh, that's why we don't care if you're uninsured. Now, in reality, uh, we already know that uh, the Affordable Care Act actually decreases deficit. So, actually, it's less money out of your pocket w when you consider the whole package. But even if I were to grant you that it was more money out of your pocket, you'd at least have to grant that, yeah, yeah, I don't give a damn that about 18% of the people in my state are uninsured. I don't care. I have no plan to fix it. And I'm fighting tooth and nail the thing that does fix it. JR brought this to our attention. It's the story you just talked about that top conservatives in the House are saying, hey, remember when you said that we were going to reform and replace, that we'd have a bill before we took the ninth break of this session? <laughs> uh, and before they go away now, they want to know we're we going to be able to vote on it before we leave in July to campaign. Uh, conservatives like Steve Scalise, he's from Louisiana, and he's chairman of the Republican Study Committee. They're pushing for a vote by the time that July set, they, before they leave town for five weeks again to campaign, that those are in primaries and before the summer. So, but there is no vote, there is no plan, and the leadership, Eric, Can Eric Cantor, who pledged it, and John Boehner, they're like, well, we don't know. Like, you think they're working on a plan? Does anybody think we're... Like, so, one thing, the, the latest tack that Republicans have taken, and Joe Scarborough, who occasionally shows himself to be a moderately reasonable person, and then on issues like Obamacare, he just backs away. Everybody chimed in. Everybody was agreeing this morning on Morning Joe, suggesting that these latest Obamacare figures are cooked because of the change in the census that occurred in 2013, the way the health care questions on the census were asked. And while Paul Krugman, who wrote a nice piece this morning, does suggest that, hey, the timing of changing those questions it was probably not a great idea politically. Guys like Joe Scarborough, they don't understand the census. They don't understand the statistics. They don't understand how that numbers work at all. What they are just saying is this is their 19th straight attack against those numbers. And they're hoping that this one lands, and there's absolutely no reason to believe them then or now. So here's the thing that Krugman said. I think it's worth bringing up, and I just read it. It's quite vile to have talk show hosts who quite literally know nothing about the field other than that they're against covering the uninsured, casually accusing the census of cooking the books to support Obamacare. And I, I just love it when people other than you are saying this. Like, they just, they don't want to cover them. They don't want to cover them, and that's what this is about. So a couple of things there. First of all, when reality's inconvenient, you just say, I don't believe reality. I don't believe reality. reality. Now, if they had really cooked the census books, did they really cook them so that the blue states had their uninsured numbers go down? Uh, but the red states also went down, but not quite as much. So you see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. If they cooked them, it would have affected all the states equally. But the results are not equal. The ones that actually expanded Medicaid 
had uninsured, uh, the uninsured number go down much further. So that is a bizarre way of cooking through the census that seems, well, impossible. Also, what part <laughs> of the, I don't know what the, I assume the numbers are essentially exactly right, or just as likely to be undersold as oversold. But when you offer people a chance to get health care who didn't have health care, you don't think they're going to take it? Of course <laughs> they are. And so that goes to the overall point. They don't have a plan because they don't care. And I just, I want mainly the media to stop beating around the bush and to, like, as if the Republicans have an alternative plan. The re look, and to, by the way, to the credit of actually the most conservative Republicans, as Ben pointed out, the Republican study group is actually the, the most right wing group there is. They're actually being uh, honest and principled here and telling the Republican leadership, hey, we said we were going to have a replacement. Where the hell is it? And Boehner says, um, we're trying to build a consensus over what an alternative would look like. <laughs> In other words, we ain't got no alternative. We uh, we're building want. consensus. In other words, we're going to just punt and we punt. can't. They, I mean, I don't blame John Boehner. They That's can't. right. They can't. There's no. They don't have. They don't what, have support for a re to reform health care. What Boehner is saying to those uh, uh, true conservatives is, "Hey, listen, guys. We know better than you. We know that if we put out your plan." It's going to get ripped apart by the media because it makes no sense. Right. Because in the end, we don't insure them. Right. <laughs> okay, well, that's not what we do. If we don't give a damn about that. Our plan isn't going to work. You're still going to have 30 million, 50 million people uninsured. The rates are going to continue to rise because we get paid by the guys who profit off of the rising rates. Our plan sucks. That's why we're not putting it out. And I want the media to at least acknowledge that. The Republican priorities are not to cover people that are not uninsured. That's very simple and very plain, and at this point, inarguable. Jay, this is Nathan from Vancouver, Washington, and this is in response to the Incentives Has Consequences episode. I'd just like to mention that, you know, there have been times <clears throat> in the past where, you know, like the Young Turks have looked at uh, the Norwegian prisons and derided how they're too cushy. And I think it plays into an important piece of the, the mass incarceration in particular how uh, Michelle Alexander characterized it in her uh, New Jim Crow is the forgiveness element. And so I, I always joke that our schools will start to improve when they're as good as a Norwegian prison. <laughs> but basically the idea is that even though their prisons aren't as lush as the things that we see in the uh, Michael Moore documentaries and so forth, what the difference is that the, those, those are kind of their out-processing facilities and it's part of something that's that's key to uh, ending recidivism at the rate that we have it which is forgiveness which is the point at which we say you've served your time we're no longer going to treat you like a pariah you've done your time we're going to reintegrate you we're going to show you the society still cares about you we're going to gently reintegrate you into society by first sending you to a you know minimum security place that's almost like a it's almost like a summer camp or something like that that they go to that that really 
gets that into their head, and then when they get out into society as well, the society has more of an attitude of forgiveness. And so by allowing them to get past the fact that they've been in prison, by allowing them to get jobs, and by, by having the cultural consciousness that we don't have to punish this person who shoplifted, shoplifted when they were 19, we don't have to punish them for the rest of their lives, that's one way to head off the recidivism and the violent gang activity and everything else that comes after prison because you end that cycle for that person. But, but with our system, we, we punish you forever once you get out of prison. You're a second-class citizen for life, and that's a big part of the problem. Over and above what happens to you in prison, because as Michelle Alexander points out, you don't even have to go to prison. You could get pure parole and still have the pariah for life label. Anyway, a fascinating discussion. I really appreciate the episode. It was really well put together. Thanks. Bye. Hey, Jay. This is Sonia from Minnesota. And knowing that you love analogies, um, here's one in regards to not all men. There is a bowl full of M&Ms in front of you. But you know that... Some, just a very small few, but some of them are poison. So, you refuse to have any. Well, what's wrong with you? Not all of them are poisoned. Or, you eat some, and you're poisoned. Well, you should have known better. You knew some of them were poisoned. And that is where we are. That's all. Bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make the show possible. Thanks to Katie Klubusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. Today, I have a non-boring update to the fundraiser that's going on. You are not going to want to miss this. This is not just, you know, oh, I've heard about the fundraiser. I don't need to hear this. This is a non-boring update, so don't go anywhere. I, I have things to say that I should have said before. I have other things to say that I hadn't thought of until just a couple of days ago, so I couldn't have said them before. That's the exciting part. Uh, but to get started, I just want to thank uh, some of the people who have donated just in the past uh, couple of days. So we'll go down the list. Ronald from Parkville, Maryland. Uh, Fidencio from uh, Rock Falls, Illinois. Gretchen from Charlestown, Rhode Island. John, uh, also from Charlestown, Rhode Island. Makes me wonder if they know each other. Uh, Nick from Torrance, California. Mary from Sweden, who was both uh, kind enough and also honored to uh, do the intro that we heard to uh, today's show. Thanks to her for that. Uh, Brian from Reading, Pennsylvania, and a lesbian from Newton, New Hampshire. And before you panic, I was not commenting on her sexuality at all. That is actually her name. And I know that I'm allowed to pronounce it that way because she told me I could when she donated several months ago to the climate ride. So thanks to all of those uh, donors, I, I'm feeling a little bit of momentum building. I, I have hope for uh, for great success with this fundraiser, and part of that success is with what I'm about to tell you, is that uh, what I should have mentioned before is that there are actually payment plans available for donations. Any donation of $100 or more, you can actually space it out 
over the course of multiple months. So, you know, if you want to donate $500, but you don't have $500, well, I can commiserate with you on that. That is why I'm doing this fundraiser right now. Uh, I do not have $500 to give to someone. But if you would like to make a, a larger donation, but do it in the form of like a pledge where you do a little bit now and then you pay it off over the course of several months, we can do that. It is built right into the site. You just go to the page that you want to donate on, and then there is the option right there to create a, a an installment plan for your donation. It is incredibly uh, easy and useful because you know who has cash on hand these days. But you know if you, if you want to make a donation and uh, and you want to stretch it a little bit further than uh, than you might otherwise, that is a great way to do it. Now, so that's a little bit exciting. Uh, that's the thing I should have mentioned before. I, I just, it, I don't know, it didn't occur to me. The next thing I, I'm genuinely excited about, I think, I think I'm about to take everyone's excitement level f- about this fundraiser uh, from, oh yeah, that's a good idea, to, oh, oh, he's on to something. Yeah, yeah, he's on to something here. So if you're just getting caught up, this fundraiser is primarily about building a new mobile application to support the work of the show. So over the past, you know, couple of years, I've invested a lot in a new website. I've invested in uh, Katie, who does social media and activism now, and the website kind of supports the show and the social media and activism that Katie does. And the next logical step is to bring all of that work to a mobile platform that makes it really, really easy for anyone to instantly access the show, our activism content, uh, be able to easily spread the word right from your mobile device. Um, it is so obviously the next logical step uh, that, that that's where I decided to go. And so I, I announced that, and my sense is that people are thinking like, yeah, like that, that's a good idea. I'm excited about that, and I think that's a good thing. But where I'm about to take it to the next level is with the idea that I had uh, just a couple days ago. And I, I'm going to try to walk the line between getting you excited and not promising anything that I end up not being able to deliver on. So I'm going to keep it vague, but I have much more clear sort of desires in my mind that I am, am striving for. I'm just going to give you a sense of it. And it's basically that I want to take, you know, more than just those obvious things that I mentioned, but the absolute DNA of the show is to share the works of other people, to promote the excellent works of others. And so it occurred to me, what is holding me back from building a mobile app that doesn't just promote Best of the Left? but promotes all of the progressive media that I use as sources, that I personally enjoy, that uh, deserve to be heard, and so on. And I, I want so desperately to say so much more about the ideas I have for that, but I'll stop there. But just let, let you imagine for a moment, if there was an app that you could use yourself or easily share with others who aren't quite familiar with podcasting or progressive media or progressivism. And there was one place that they could go to tap into, you know, not just this show where they get like a little taste of everything, 
but they could actually tap into all of these different sources without having to do the legwork of finding it themselves. Just, just let your imagination run with that one for a little while. When I had that idea, that, that was one of those moments when adrenaline like flushed my brain and I just I started getting jittery with how excited I was at the potential for what that could be. And speaking of potential, that, that's the last thing I want to touch on today, which is having that idea was sort of indicative of the types of things that can be done with a mobile platform like this. So let me clarify that part of the point of building an app like this that I would, you know, manage and own myself and be able to, uh, you know, edit at a whim. Part of the point of having something like that is being able to act on interesting ideas in the future. So so this this fundraiser trying to build this platform isn't just about the ideas I have right now. I happen to think that the ideas I have right now are very exciting, but who knows what is coming in the future? Having a platform available to act on those future ideas is, you know, just as critical as the ideas I'm working on right now. So my hope is that you are not only willing to invest in the ideas I'm giving now, but the potential for growth and expansion and who knows what's coming next, but setting ourselves up to be ready for whatever comes next and being able to act on it more easily in the future. Uh, that is what this fundraiser is about. So the goal is set at $15,000. It's because having people design uh, mobile applications is just not cheap. It's just not. So, uh, so that is the goal. It's very ambitious. But these really exciting ideas, the potential for the sort of the usefulness of this app to spread far, far beyond just this show, but to actually touch much, much more of the uh, progressive community and potentially actually like reach out and find brand new people who weren't involved in the community at all and, and actually bring them in. That excitement coupled with the idea that you can actually pay uh, over time if you feel like uh, donating a lot and trying to get, uh, you know, uh, uh, just a few like, I don't know, a dozen people buying lifetime memberships and this fundraiser is over, totally over. And I mean, I, I just turned 31. I plan on being around for a while. So lifetime membership, uh, I, I will stick around for a while and we're going to build some exciting stuff together. For all the details, obviously, please just go to bestoftheleft.com, click on the big banner that says fundraiser, and help us on our way. That's going to be it for today. Thanks everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show, especially by becoming a member or making one-time donations, especially during this uh, fundraising month. That is absolutely how the program survives and how we are going to grow and be amazing in the future. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash left. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every third day thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com and it's a cry and shame how we get so trained we can see past all the sad stories and wonder what we're missing 
Christmas.